Good morning. We begin our brand new series in the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the eighth book of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story about redemption. Ruth is poor and a widow and an alien. She is in great need of redemption. And God is committed to his people. He stops at nothing to redeem them, to buy them back. But in order to redeem, there are three different things that need to happen. First off, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem us. Secondly, the Redeemer must have the capacity to redeem. And third, the Redeemer must be near enough to redeem us. Now, we just celebrated Christmas and Jesus Christ coming near to bring redemption. God is not in a faraway place, inaccessible. God has come near. The nearness of God would refer to his humanity, of stepping into humanity, becoming one of us. Because God has become one of us, he has the capacity to redeem us. Secondly, the Redeemer must have the wherewithal, the capacity to redeem. God is not limited with his capacity. When Jesus paid the purchase price, the purchase price was sufficient for all. I remember shopping when I was little. My mom and I would often go to the A&P um, grocery store. And when she made the purchase price, they would give to her S&H saving stamps. They were green. You paid 100 bucks, and you got these saving stamps. And these saving stamps were put into books. And the books were sort of made complete. And then there was a redemption. And you actually went to a redemption center. And you could actually redeem with your book various things like coffee pots. So when you came there, you could say, I've come to redeem something. I've come to the redemption center. And once you redeemed it, it became yours. This morning, you've come to redemption center, and you're surrounded by all different kinds of stories of redemption, of how God has purchased us out of so much stuff. We're going to hear a lot of those stories over the next few weeks. Our big problem is that we are slaves to sin. Sin has become our master. Even when we were unaware of sin, sin was dominating, enslaving us. You see, we can be a slave to a false identity. And we can be a slave to a wrong mindset. And we can be a slave to our past. We can be a slave to earning people's approval. We can be a slave to our work. But Jesus understood that we were slaves, so he came to set the captives free. So he willingly went to the cross and became our redeemer. He set us free from the penalty of our sin. He is setting us free from the power of sin. And one glorious day, he will set us free from the very presence of sin. Sin is not our master because we have a redeemer. You can say no to sin because sin is no longer in control of your life. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. Now, one way to talk, talk about the cross is to talk about redemption. The price of redemption was the blood of Jesus. You never could be redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Jesus, he paid the redemption price, and he has redeemed us. And then there must be a willingness of the Redeemer to redeem us. Our God is a strong deliverer. And he will do whatever it takes to set us free. Redemption is such a strong theme in my life. I'll evaluate movies if 
by how much redemption's in them. If there's no redemption, it's only dark. I tend to not like the movie at all. But if there is redemption, like Les Mis is all about redemption, the story of redemption, the purchase price, and then a man living out the life of redemption, I tend to like it a lot. Eleanor Duty yesterday was remembered here at the church. She, um, her life is really a story of redemption. She was serving as the dean of women at Liberty University, and one of the students from Liberty was driving home for a, a holiday to be with his family and was killed tragically in an auto accident. Two days later, at his viewing, his wake, his mother suffered a heart attack and died. Eleanor Duty was the dean of women at Liberty. Learning of this, went to comfort the family and bring encouragement. Our God is redemptive. She met there Dan, the bereaved husband and father, and she began to comfort him. One of her daughters was at Liberty at the same time. One of his daughters was at Liberty, and she began to make cookies for her and blueberry muffins and invited her to the house to have dinner. She became a mother. Shortly thereafter, that year, she moved off to, um, to Africa, to Kenya, the Rift Valley Academy, to work with missionary kids, and they still corresponded. And when she came home from Africa, they were married. And to me, it was such a beautiful story of redemption of God redeeming a tragedy. I want you to stand with me. We're going to read together this passage of 15 verses. So let me clue you in. We're going to come to a name. It starts with an E. It's Elimelech. We're going to counter his two boys. Their names are Malon and Kilion. There's going to be a town, the old name for Bethlehem, Ephrathite. So tie your best to these names as we uh, go through the scripture together. Let's do it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there for about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, 
Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. There's more. <laughs> let's, let's make that enough. Okay, sit down. <laughs> Good reading. Thank you all for working through that passage with me. Let me make some initial observations to you about the text. First of all, the setting. It was the days in which the judges ruled. It was a time of great spiritual decay. If you look at the preceding book, the book of Judges, the last verse, it says, in, that, in those days, Israel had no king, no leadership, and everybody did as he saw fit. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You could call it a very dark time, that though there was a remnant in Israel, the faithful, it was characterized by people doing their own thing, making up their own rules, not following after God, giving in to temptation. Some have paralleled America to this time um, in the book of Judges here in Ruth, a time of unparalleled spiritual decline. That while there is spiritual remnant here in our country, there is certainly a spiritual decline. If you ask those 25 and under, what is their religion? The number one answer is none. I was brief this week about some pending legislation before the Maryland legislature. There has now the issues with gas tax hike and the death tax, but there's a pending piece of legislation now pertaining to transgender. That is to say, if a person has either gone through a sex change or simply dresses like a person of the opposite sex, they'll be entitled to go to whatever bathroom they desire. That is to say that a man dressed up as a woman can slip into a woman's bathroom, and that's pending before our Maryland legislature. Like I say, we are in a time of great spiritual decay in our land. But not only was there spiritual decay, there was an economic crisis. It says here in the first verse that there was a famine in the land. The people were hungry. Families were suffering and hurting. Famine speaks of God's judgment, his discipline. God was so trying to get their attention. God was trying to wake them up. God was allowing tough circumstances come into their life that they would turn back to him. And there's three ironies as we begin this story. The first irony is that Elimelech um, was living in Bethlehem with his family. Bethlehem means house of bread. The irony is in the house of bread Bethlehem, there was no bread. <laughs> it's kind of like going to McDonald's and there's no hamburger. That actually happened to me once. I was going through the drive-thru and I said, I'd like to have a hamburger. And the person says, we don't have any hamburgers. And I said, we're at McDonald's, right? It's like going to the bonefish grill and ordering a fish taco. And they say, we don't have any fish. Now, we hear complaints in America about hardships. The Chinese are buying up America. America's running up its debt. But the harder question is, what are the underlying issues? What are the roots of these problems? You see, faced with the hardships, Elimelech has a decision to make. Should I keep my family in Bethlehem, where there's famine, where they're starving, or relocate to Moab? The second irony in the story is that Elimelech means, my God is king. Eli, my God, Melech, king. My God is king. My God is sovereign. My God is ruling and reigning. My God is sovereign. 
The irony is Elimelech is not looking to God for direction. He's setting his own direction. He's living as if there isn't a God. He's living independently, autonomously of God. And he will make a tragic decision implicating his wife and children, removing them from a place of worship and fellowship and taking them to a dark place, Moab. It's sort of the equivalent of a person out of work, facing hard times, coming home and saying to his wife, Honey, we're moving to Saudi Arabia to make money where there's spiritual oppression and darkness. You see, we're quick to jump at economic opportunity, but we don't always weigh the impact on our families. He serves to us as a negative example of making a foolish decision that implicates his family. He never weighed the spiritual cost of the decision he was going to make. Now, just a side note, the college you decide determines, you know, where you're going to be for several years. And it could be that there you'll develop lifelong friends. It could be that there you'll find your lifelong mate. My two sons who've been off to college, both Chris and Jimmy, found their lifelong mate at college. Where you move to determines, you know, the neighborhood you live in, the community you become part of, the church you fellowship with. And the third irony is that Elimelech moved his family to find life, but what he found in the land of Moab was death. So I'm going to teach you now a principle I hope you hold on to as we begin this series in Ruth. And here's the principle. It's the principle of the path. This is a principle that's always at work in your life. It's always impacting your life. It's always operating in your life. If you are a Christian, this is something that's already impacting you. If you're not a Christian, this is already operating in your life. And here's what it is. Your life is on a path, and you're going to end up somewhere. And the path you pursue determines your destiny. You're on a financial path, for instance. And my heart's desire for you is not only that you would honor the Lord with the first fruits, that you would learn to save some money, but that you would not be a slave to the lender. Person asked the question, how, do I, how did I end up here? And the answer is, you took a path. You leased cars you shouldn't have leased. You bought a house you couldn't afford. You went to a store and you saw something and you wanted it and you paid for it with plastic. And what happened there was you began to accrue debt. <clears throat> now there's calls from collection agencies. Your credit score is messed up. You say, how did I get here, Pastor R? The truth is you took a path, you see. We all have a path we pursue. And the path we pursue determines our destiny. We're all going to end up somewhere because of the path. Elimelech is on a path. He's like many of us on a path. Remember, our direction determines our destiny, and our path determines our destination. Elimelech is very concerned about the economy, just like many here are. He's concerned about the economic condition of his nation, of his family. We read that there's a famine in the land, but he never asks the hard question, why is there a famine? What are the underlying issues? What's the roots of the problem? He sees his disposable income beginning to shrink. 
With famine, there's a decreasing supply and increasing costs. The costs of things were on the rise. And he's very worried about his family's financial position. Just a side word. Men are hardwired to think about provision for their family, to worry about whether there's going to be a roof over our kid's head, whether there's going to be clothes on their back, shoes on their feet, food on the table. The government makes a huge mistake when it takes that responsibility away from a man. Elimelech assesses that situation. I have a wife. I have two sons. I need to provide for them. And then he makes a decision. I will move my family to Moab. But he never thinks about the implications of his decision to move away and relocate. What kind of a place was Moab? Moab was a place of spiritual darkness. There wasn't worship in that land. There wasn't fellowship with believers. Let me say a word to you men. The path that you're on, not your intention, determines your destiny. And you have a family. And your path, the path you choose, determines not only your own personal destiny, but also the destiny of your marriage and your children. Let me ask you this. If you were to follow the path your father took, what direction would that take you in? If you were to follow the path your mother took, what direction would that take you in? If you were to stay on the very same path you're on, what direction would that take you in? A friend of mine is a pilot, and some of you here like to fly. And I said to him once, what do you do when you're lost? And he said, I radio the tower and say, I'm temporarily unsure of my position. And that's where some of you are. You're temporarily unsure of your position. But I assure you of this, that you're on a path. And the path you pursue will determine your destiny. You men are the leaders of your family. You are the head of your household. And you have taken a path. You're an example for others to follow. Can you imagine the impact, the collective impact, if all we men said, we're going to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to go anywhere he tells us to go. We're going to do anything he tells us to do. We're going to say anything he tells us to say. Because my path will be his path, and my will will be his will. You see, if you don't care where you're going, any path will do, right? You know, if you're out in the woods and you just want to take a path, you can take a path, and the path will take you somewhere. But if you want to take a path to Richmond, you better not get on 95 going north, because that path is never going to take you where you want to go. You see, many of you are making decisions that impact your families. Like, for instance, my kids are playing every sport there is. And I say, how's it going? Well, we never have time to see each other. We never have a meal together as a family. You see, you've chosen a path. You don't like the path you're on. You can choose another path. Outside of my house, I have a little garden. And there's roses there that grow and some tomatoes I plant and other vegetables. But there's something that comes up in my garden called a volunteer. It's a volunteer tomato. And these tomatoes come up and they grow across the sidewalk. And Debbie says to me, why don't you remove those tomato plants because they're hindering people walking up the sidewalk? And I say that 
Maybe someday those tomatoes will produce tomatoes. But those tomatoes never produce tomatoes. They just kind of block access to the house and are unsightly. And I'm the gardener. I can make a hard decision to pull up that tomato plant. But there's something in, inside of me that thinks this tomato plant is going to bear some fruit. That tomato plant has never borne fruit. It's a volunteer producing nothing. But I allow that to stay in my garden. I am the gardener. I have the power to make a choice over that tomato plant. And you have the power to make choices about your life, about the path you're on. And whatever path you're on is going to determine your destiny. You see, there's something we pay attention to. And then there's a path we choose. And then there's a destiny that we find. Elimelech is steering his family on a path. He's guiding his family in a direction. He's motivated primarily by the financial. He sees an opportunity to move. He believes he'll be better off in Moab, but they're not going to be. Let's talk about Naomi and her path. We'll talk about her a lot more in the next couple weeks. But suffice it to say, Naomi is crushed by the tragedies of her life. She's raw with her grief. She's devastated by her losses. If you've lost somebody recently, we certainly empathize with you in terms of your loss, of how hard it is, these losses. Here's a woman who's lost her husband. Here's a woman who's lost her two sons. She went over to this land full with a handsome husband and two sons, with a song in her heart, with a hope things would get better, and now she's empty. She's facing a very bleak financial future. Her husband did not leave her very well. She's broke and she's penniless. And it appears as if she feels as if she can't remarry and start over. Her world is very dark and very hopeless. She seems to put the blame on God Almighty, saying, he's turned his hand against me. And that might be exactly how you feel, that God has turned his hand against you. But you know how we feel, though it's real and valid, is not true. It doesn't come from a true belief. God hadn't turned against her. Her dumb husband had made some dumb decisions. Her foolish husband had done some foolish things. And so, therefore, because he made these decisions, the family is beginning to suffer. But listen to these prayers she prays in verses Verse 8, you'll see it. May the Lord show his kindness to you. Naomi's saying, I don't have anything to give you, Ruth, Orpah, but God has much to give you. God is gracious and merciful, compassionate. God is overflowing with love and blessings. I'm broke, but God isn't broke. I have no future, but God has a future for you. I'm tapped out, but God isn't. When you think about this prayer, it's, it's like this. She, in her heartache and loss, is praying, the Lord may bless them. The Lord may show them his goodness. The Lord may be compassionate unto you. The Lord may be gracious unto you. She's believing in a God who intervenes, who acts on people's behalf, and shows his favor and his kindness. You know, the Lord's loving kindness is better than life. One of the beautiful prayers that Scott prays often is, may the Lord surround us with his unfailing love that our hearts may be glad, that we may sing for joy. Of thinking of the kindness 
and the favor and the love of God. She's really praying to a sovereign God who's over all things. I remember myself being invited into a horrific tragedy, an unspeakable loss, a loss involving the loss of life. I remember being in that place and seeing the loving kindness of God. I remember the sheriff, Sheriff Jenkins, coming to the family and saying words of kindness, words of encouragement. I remember the sheriff's office bringing in little sandwiches and apples and something to drink for the family to partake of. I remember the love expressed between the family members. I remember the churches coming together in the community. I remember the outpouring of love. And there I remember the loving kindness of God, even in the midst of life's worst tragedies. You see, Naomi finds herself in the midst of a personal tragedy. But she's really praying for God's favor, his loving kindness to fall upon Ruth in Orpah. And then she prays a second prayer. May you find rest, rest in the home of a husband. May you find security and protection. We all look for a place of rest, a place to feel safe, a place where we feel protected. A woman longs for a man to shelter her, to take care of her. And Naomi's prayer is, may you find rest in the home of another husband. And their culture to get married was to find rest. Husbands, you are able to give rest to your wife. She can rest in the shelter of your arms. She can rest in the shelter of your protection. She can rest in the shelter of your love. Unmarried ones, find someone who will shelter you, who will protect you. It's as if a man has been designed to shelter and a woman has been designed to find her safety and his protection. It's the idea of shalom, of rest, of wellness, peace, of soundness. And I love how you husbands shelter your wives. You spare them from some of the harsh realities of life. You lock up the house so they can feel safe. And you tackle unpleasant chores, (laughs) though sometimes you don't want to, to make their life better. You see, Naomi is on a path. And we'll talk a little bit more about her path in coming weeks. Secondly, Orpah, her path. Orpah, who Oprah Winfrey was named after, but somehow they got a spelling mistake. So Orpah became Oprah. Okay. She grew up in spiritual darkness with idolatry, sexual immorality, incest. She did not know the one and true God. She bowed her knee to false God named Chemosh. She was an idolater. She dabbled herself, perhaps, in sexual immorality. So into her life rolled Elimelech and his family. Them be, living in proximity to Orpah, their, her, the son of Elimelech met Orpah, and there was an attraction, and they were married. They did not have children together. So now she's a grieving widow with no husband to take care of her. I imagine Orpah is very frightened by her future. She must have wondered, what's next? <laughs> you know, what path should I take? Her mother-in-law stands out on a path, a path to take her home. Now get this. Naomi, in the midst of her tragedy, has to decide the path she is to take. 
And she is trying to encourage Orpah and Ruth to turn on a path toward their homes. Where Naomi is headed is toward Beth- Bethlehem, which is toward redemption. Now, we don't blame Orpah for what she did. She did the logical, sensible thing. She kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and she went back to her people and to her gods. What Orpah was on was on the old, familiar path. The same old, same old path. Somebody said, I wake up to the same old bed. I wake up in the same old bed. And I shower myself in the same old shower. And I drink my coffee from the same old cup. And I go downstairs and I put my cereal in the same old bowl. And I get myself into the same old car. And I drive in that same old car to my same old work. And I sit in my same old work in my same old cubicle. And I listen to my same old working partners tell the same old jokes. And I go out of there because I can't take it anymore to get some lunch to eat at the same old place. And then I have the same old afternoon like I've had forever and ever. And I drive in the same old car through the same old traffic to my same old house. And there I sit down in my same old house to my same old plate and eat my same old dinner. And then I fall asleep watching television in my same old chair. And then I go to my same old bed and I get a chance to do it over and over again. Your path will determine your destiny. You see, Orpah has a chance to break with the familiar. She has a road back to Bethlehem. She has a road to redemption. There's a glimmer of hope for Orpah if she'll only take the path. But she chooses to go back to her people and to her gods. Even when a person has made a break, it's so easy to go back to the former lifestyle, to the old friends, to the old patterns of one's life. It's so hard to make a break with the past. This is a brand new year. And God may be calling you to make a break with the past. Maybe there's an area of your life that God wants to redeem. God wants to set you free from. Maybe you've even made a resolution that I want to make a change in this year. You know, I succumb to old patterns. I went this Friday night to a gathering where I heard the meal consisted of soup and salad. And I was trying to be good with soup and salad. So I walked in, and I saw there the crab dip. Now, the crab dip was certainly delightful. It had this nice, you know, creamy sauce, nice Maryland chunk crab. And it sat there in its bowl, and I thought, I'll just have myself a little dabble. So I arranged my plate with cucumbers around it, you know, and I put a little dabble of crab dip in the middle. And I partook of it and enjoyed it. I thought, this is quite enough. And I went back to the crab dip a second time. This time I took double the amount I'd taken the first time with less vegetables and just started, you know, wolfing it in. And I went back a third time to the crab dip. And I found myself in this old familiar pattern, if you will, of self-indulgence. I wonder if you ever battle with self-indulgence. I wonder if you have any old familiar patterns that need to break. The things you think about that aren't true. 
an identity you hold for yourself that's false, a slavery to someone, a slavery to something. Orpah had an opportunity to break free. And then there's Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is given an encouragement to go back. Naomi said, Ruth, I've got nothing. I'm broke. I can't help you. Go back to your own people, your own gods. Now, most people would say to Ruth, Ruth, do the sensible thing, right? Do the ordinary thing. But Ruth makes a choice. She makes a decision that's going to change the trajectory of her life. We find here that she clings to Naomi. It's as if a, you know, the bark is clinging to the tree, like glue that holds two things together. Ruth is not going back. Ruth is going forward. Ruth is making a clean break from her past. Ruth is forsaking her false gods. Ruth is moving away from darkness, and she's stepping into light. You see, Ruth is beginning a brand new life. She's not going back to her old people. She's not going back to her old gods. She's on a pathway to redemption. And that is the path that Jesus Christ invites us into, the pathway to redemption. So which of the characters in the story do you most identify with? Elimelech. Everything's falling apart in his life. Everything's looking dark. He's worried about the financial situation. So he makes a decision. He makes a decision to go to Moab. (laughs) He is the king of his own life. I can hear him saying, just trust me, right? Just follow me. I've got it all under control. Just follow me. How many are like Orpah? You don't really believe Christianity works. So you want to try something else. You're trying to find a new God, a new religion, a new spirituality. I was talking to somebody recently, and she said, Pastor R, I was dating a non-Christian, and I prayed he'd become a Christian, and he didn't. Prayer doesn't work for me. So I gave up my faith. I've given up on Christianity. I've gone back to my old lifestyle. I don't like my life, but Christianity doesn't work for me. How many are like Naomi? (laughs) Bitter, cranky, moody, finger-pointing? This is how I think it works. We start out trying to be like Elimelech. I've got a plan. You know, I've got it all figured out. I got these problems in my life, but here's my plan. So we start in our plan. And then our plan doesn't work. We become like Naomi, right? Bitter, cranky, moody, finger-pointing, blaming somebody else. And then we come like Orpah and we say, it doesn't work, right? I'm going back to my own familiar ways. We all have a path to pick. You better pick your path carefully because the path you pick is going to determine your destiny. Orpah and Ruth had come to a fork in the road. One road goes back to the familiar, to their gods and people. But one road goes on a road they have never traveled before to the true and living God, to the people of God. You find yourself at a fork, at a turning point. I'll tell you this. I've seen a lot of people make this choice. And those who have chosen the path to go back have lived to regret that choice. 
but I have never found a soul yet on the path to redemption who's regretted making that choice. You might be saying, Pastor R, I am so done. I am so done with how I'm living my life. I don't want to live my life like this anymore. I am a slave to something. I am a slave to somebody. And I want to break free. I want to tell you the price of redemption has been paid for you. The Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. And when he went to that cross, he paid for your freedom. He paid for your forgiveness. And you walk that path of redemption. And you won't regret the path you're on of being forgiven, of being free. But you've got to make a choice at the fork in the road. You see, Orpah turned back, but Ruth turned toward God. How will you turn? Pray with me. So here we stand, here we sit at a fork in the road. Many would say in this room, I've tried Christianity. It really doesn't work. I want to try another religion. I want to pursue another God, another kind of spirituality. God in heaven, would you come and meet us where we are? Would you show us, Lord, the pathway to redemption? Would you show us the cross where our Savior was lifted up, purchasing our freedom and purchasing our forgiveness, purchasing us out of a life of slavery? Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you uncork our ears? Would you remove a spirit of stupor and give us a spirit of faith to see that there is redemption for our souls? There is redemption from our past. There is redemption from that which holds us captive. And there is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ, who came near enough to redeem us, who has the capacity to redeem us, and is so willing to redeem us from whatever holds us captive. Holy Spirit, would you illumine to us now what is holding us in bondage, what we are a slave unto? Would you remind us of the purchase price has been paid and that purchase was made upon a cross. God, here in this place, we open our hearts to you. We ask you, Lord, to cleanse us and to heal us and to restore us. And this morning, we would ask you, Lord, to redeem us, to set us free and make our hearts joyful, those who've been redeemed, that the price of redemption has been paid. For all those standing at the fork, God, would you give them the wisdom in how they make their choice because the path they pursue is going to determine their destiny. Father, we choose to spend our destiny and to follow you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to celebrate the redemption that was paid for us, the price that Christ paid on the cross by celebrating bread and cup. So I'll invite the team to come. This is something for believers. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're invited to partake. Pastor Scott's going to come and lead us in some worship music. So at any point in the music you wish to come and get some of the elements, you can. There'll be a quieting down part, an instrumental part, if you want to wait a little while to partake of the elements. But I encourage you to examine your own heart. You know, the Bible says before we partake, we need to examine ourselves. So allow the Holy Spirit just to um, bring some illumination to you of things you need to confess. 
and spend some quiet moments in the presence of the Lord, just letting him be next to you, communion with God, letting him speak to you. We're going to worship together. So you're free now at any point to partake and um, receive the elements.